Good morning. I hope it's a good surprise that I'm preaching today. <laughs> Would you please join me in prayer? Oh God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Gracious Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I was raised in the Greek Orthodox tradition, a rich liturgical heritage that deeply values fasting as a core spiritual discipline. Originating from the ancient churches founded by the apostles in the Middle East during the first century AD, the Greek Orthodox Church upholds many timeless rituals. Fasting is observed weekly on Wednesdays in remembrance of Christ's betrayal and Fridays in honor of his crucifixion. Additionally, the faithful follow a structured liturgical calendar, including a 40-day fast that precedes the Feast of the Nativity, Christmas, a 14-day fast that precedes the Feast of Mary in August, and the Holy Apostles' Fast, which begins the day after All Saints' Day and lasts through June 28. Notably, there's also a 40-day Lenten season preceding Holy Week. This is a lot of fasting, don't you agree? <laughs> For Orthodox Christians, Lent signifies a profound journey of repentance and reliance on God. To support believers on this path, the Church provides guidelines encompassing various forms of fasting ranging from abstaining from meat, dairy, and eggs, to simpler diets centered on vegetables and grains. While the church offers this framework, it is not intended to be legalistic. Rather, it's meant to allow for a certain amount of freedom to think through and adopt the disciplines of fasting for ourselves that we can keep. These are not tactics that the Orthodox use to avoid complete absence from food. Rather, these are specific regulations, not external rules imposed in an arbitrary way. The two main reasons emphasized to why we fast in the tradition I grew up in is repentance and dependency on God. Fasting is a way to repent well. What do they mean by that? It is to afflict oneself physically for a time in order to sincerely apologize to God for the sin and move on in freedom of forgiveness. It's to feel the full weight of sin so, and so to feel Jesus take that full weight of sin off your heart and body. It is to apologize to God well in a certain way that you feel the weight of the wrongdoing. An example of that in our daily life is when we teach our kids to apologize well so they may learn that they have done something wrong, hoping they will not repeat it because it's not good for them. Repentance is not only the feeling of regret or remorse for sins, but more importantly, it's about responding to God's call through Christ turning to God with our souls, minds, hearts, and bodies. 
fasting is a body turning, as Scott McKnight puts it. We see this throughout scripture. And one important example is Yom Kippur, which is literally a day of national fasting for the Jewish people. Israel is told to make their life uncomfortable for an entire day in order to bring their entire person into harmony with the gravity of sin and the need to turn from sin toward God who is gracious and forgiving. We see this way of repentance not only on the national level of Israel but also on the personal one with Saul or Paul in Acts 9 which tells the story of his conversion. It's written that after he saw Christ, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Verses 8 and 9. McKnight writes, quote, so sacred was Saul's moment of seeing Jesus. So powerful was his realization that he had been opposing the very work of God. So potent was his apprehension of his sin. And so deeply did he sense God's grief over his, sin, his sinfulness that Saul repented with an absolute fast for three days. End of quote. The other primary aim of fasting is to make us conscious of our dependency upon God. If practiced seriously, absence from food, particularly in the opening days, involves a considerable measure of real hunger and also a feeling of tiredness, physical exhaustion. The purpose of this is to lead us to a sense of inward brokenness that we may acknowledge the lordship of God over our lives and that we do not live by bread alone. If we always take our fill of food and drink, we easily grow overconfident in our own abilities, acquiring a false sense of autonomy and self-sufficiency. I do not know how you are experiencing fasting, but I really experience these feelings of physical exhaustion and even anger. That's not to say fasting leads merely to this, since it also brings a sense of lightness, wakefulness, freedom, and joy. However, the first stages experiences of fasting have always been difficult, have always involved hardships, and that's okay. We must surrender to the Holy Spirit to move and work. We may struggle, give up, think that fasting is not for us. We may feel diminished in our spiritual growth and journey, and that's all fine. This is part of the human experience of growing. This is why we're invited to surrender to God, the gardener of our souls, in the beautiful image brought to us by Krista on the woman's retreat. Do not hurry. God knows, takes care of us, soul and body, and we have our seasons like any plant. We just need to trust and surrender to God's spirit, an act that requires going to God in prayer. 
I came across a story of a priest who during Soviet times was interrogated by a critic of fasting saying, our work suffers and became and we became irritable. I've never seen people so bad tempered as during the last days of Holy Week. Clearly, fasting has a very bad effect on their nerves. To this, the priest replied, you are quite right. If it is not accompanied by prayer and an increased spiritual life, it merely leads to a heightened state of irritability. It is natural that people who took their fasting seriously and who were first to work during Lent and not being allowed to go to church were angry and irritable. The priest's insights regarding the natural relationship between fasting and prayer is evident in the life of early Christians. The Bible tells us that they fasted and prayed. Fasting is seen not as an end in itself, but as an aid to more intense and living prayer, as a preparation for decisive action or for direct encounter with God. As an encounter with God, prayer is a communal and personal way of opening our lives into the presence of God. There's an invitation for everyone to open their lives to God, to join our hearts and minds with God, to understand his will and live out his purpose in the world. Repentance and dependency on God are important aspects of fasting and prayer. However, my eyes were opened to a more beautiful and striking Christian reality when I read and studied the passage that we are going to read. Thomas, would you please read the passage for us? Pray with me real quick as we uh, receive God's word. Father God, uh, just come for us now. Prepare our hearts and minds as we receive the words now that are in the book of Acts. May it rest in our hearts and um, may it... Uh, transform how we're hearing uh, what Nora has to say to us. In your holy name, amen. The passage today is from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was known as the Black, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been bought, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Sulamese, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bargesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to know he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that was his, what his name means, 
opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you ever not stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This passage teaches the profundity and powerful meaning of fasting and prayer together, especially in times of discernment. This story that Thomas just read for us marks a great moment in the book of Acts in which we now have Paul actually beginning his first missionary journey, transporting the gospel from Jerusalem and Antioch to the world. In verse one, there's a third reference to the Church of Antioch in the book of Acts. And just a side note, um, the distance between Antioch and where I was born and raised in the suburbs of Damascus to the south of Antioch is more or less the same distance between Decatur and Savannah. Earlier in Acts, we hear that after the persecution and the stoning of Stephen, the disciples of Christ went out into the world, some of whom went to Antioch. And then in Antioch, we understand that they started preaching the gospel for the first time, not only to the Jewish people, but apparently preaching to the Gentiles as well. Barnabas was sent by the church in Jerusalem to Antioch to check on how things were going up there. And as he arrived, he saw the great evidence of God's grace working and was so impressed that he thought he needed to bring Saul there too. And it is in this situation that a prophet by the name of Agapus, by God's illumination, had been able to foresee that there would be a great famine coming. Because they saw these difficult times coming, Saul and Barnabas set about the task of collecting some funds in Antioch to help the church in Jerusalem. And they traveled to the church in Jerusalem. And then after completing their mission in Jerusalem, they returned to Antioch. And there in the church of Antioch, we see followers of Christ, among them Saul and Barnabas, worshiping, praying, and fasting as they were discerning God's will for what was next for them. The phase that the apostles were in in this story is similar to phases we face sometimes in our lives. When we are finishing a chapter or season of our lives and and waiting for the start of another, such as career transition, relocation, marriage, separation, parenthood, education transition, retirement, health challenges, you name it. In the midst of this phase, we are told that the apostles were praying and fasting, inviting God to speak to them as they were discerning what was ahead. The church in Antioch was embodying the rhythms of Christian living and discipline that lead to the things that are most important. 
It's in this context of these disciplines that God infuses moments of surprising insights or inspirations. We see here that the people of Antioch fasting and praying, and then God brings to them an unexpected message. The Holy Spirit breaks in. Something new is, bre is brewing that comes to the surface as the church through fasting and prayers makes room for the Holy Spirit and invites the Spirit to speak. In the context of a church's devotion, the Spirit speaks, ordering to set apart Barnabas and Saul. This is the only time in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit issues a direct command to the church. Isn't that powerful? The Spirit moves and works in mysterious and wonderful ways, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John. The Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where, where it comes from or where it's going. But what we know from today's passage, that while the church are gathered, fasting and praying, God is doing something in that. Even though... Peter has gone to the Gentiles in chapter 10, earlier in the story. It seems that it is in this moment, in the church of Antioch, the Holy Spirit speaks clearly, opening it up to a new type of evangelistic outreach that brings the gospel to those who are not raised Jewish. And the rest of the book of Acts tells the story about this new evangelistic approach and what God's will is for the world. Fasting and praying, therefore, invoke God's presence and will. But how does this happen? John of Damascus, a 7th century Christian monk and theologian, said, quote, Prayer is raising our mind and heart to God. End of quote. It, seems, it means to attend to God, to be aware of God, to be able to seek communion with God in a conscious way thus raising up the mind with all our attentiveness, intellectual abilities, and also raising up the heart to God with all our passions, feelings, and longings. And fasting is a form of praying with our bodies. Scott McKnight again speaks about fasting as a body plea. In his understanding, body, spirit, soul, weld themselves into a unified action, the whole person facing God and pleading for grace and mercy and justice. We plead and express the desires of our hearts and ask God to meet them. But it is not about bargaining with God. Rather, it's a response to a condition. The apostles in Antioch are fasting and praying in response to a condition that arises. In their case, need for direction. Prayer and fasting created space in their lives and create space in our lives for God to speak. It's an endeavor to detach from earthly created matters to discover the deepest hunger of our souls. As we tend to get attached to created things, we make them godlike, and they take on exaggerated importance. Therefore, it's good sometimes to actively detach the self from them in order to understand what the soul really wants. The soul can be so caught up in secondary goods 
that it even begins to forget what is really after. We are longing ultimately for God, and only in God our souls find rest, echoing St. Augustine's famous words. We are not here despising the pleasures of the body. They are good and God-given. But when they become dominant, taking lordship of our life, then our deepest desire for God is not realized. These desires are so pressing, like little kids who want things right away. Do we always respond immediately and unconditionally to what they want? Or do we, detach, uh, or do we teach our kids, as we were taught, that we must control, control our wants? We cannot reduce our lives to our desires because they become a restricted compass. Fasting helps us rise above these temptations and therefore clear up our hearts and minds to encounter the divine. Ephraim the Syrian, a fourth century church father, gives a very beautiful image in one of his hymns on fasting. He writes, Fasting secretly purifies the soul so the soul can gaze on God and grow by the vision of him. For the weight that is from the earth bends it back to the earth. Blessed he who gave us fasts, the sheer wings by which we fly to him. Seeking God's spirit with all our hearts, minds, bodies, through fasting and prayer creates space for God's movement in our lives. And this movement is one which is not only tied to the interior life, which is definitely the case as we have seen so far, but also to the mission of the church in the world. As the apostles in Antioch were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks and commissions. Set, up, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, verse two. The apostles did not move at their own initiative. It is only through the rhythms of worship and fasting that the Christian community learns to align itself with the work that God has for the world. The guidance and mission come from God, not from us. The practices of fasting and prayer then have less to do with us than with God. The Holy Spirit did not come to them empty-handed, but rather with mission and strength. The Acts of the Apostles, as Bishop Robert Barron says, is the story of how Jesus gradually became king, how his power and influence spread all over the world. How did this happen? Precisely through the concrete and visible acts of the apostles, which in turn the product of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit described by St. Augustine as the bond of love between the Father and the Son, descends on the church and empowers it for its mission to gather God's children into the love of God. It is a spirit of marsh, eager to engage the word and proclaim Jesus as Lord through the power of word and vision, particularly in this story. The Holy Spirit is powerful, don't we all agree? 
We see this later in the passage when Paul and Cyprus met the magician and filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 9, looked straight at Elmas and said, you are a child of the devil. You are an enemy of all righteousness. You're going to be blind for a time. When we get in touch with the Holy Spirit, we are in touch with the love that connects the Father and the Son. With the love that God is, and therefore with the very force that gave rise to the universe and sustains it. Tapping into this power, Paul blinds the enemy of all righteousness. And it is the same power that blinded Paul for chapters earlier in Acts when he saw Jesus. It's the same power that led Paul to unlearn his sight so that he could learn to see through the eyes of God. Paul surrenders himself to the power of the Spirit and taught that he sees the truth through the eyes of God. Paul, filled with the Spirit, saw the darkness of Elmas and blinded it. I see this powerful. We might think here that the Holy Spirit is ferocious, dangerous, coming after things that stand in opposition to God and God's ways. And that's true. For us who sometimes tame the Holy Spirit as a, and confuse it with warm, fuzzy feelings, this might come as a surprise. But this is the character of God's love for us. It knocks things down, it cleanses things out, it puts us to blindness and gives us a new vision in Christ. Just as the Spirit purifies Saul and raises him again as an apostle of Christ, and just as the Spirit purifies and raises the early church to be more than a Jewish sect, so does the Spirit work now among us, purifying us and raising us as witnesses of Christ. And it is our privilege and responsibility as Christ followers to endure the work of the Holy Spirit faithfully. How do we endure it? Simply by actively participating in the church's mission locally and globally. Was Paul's mission in the fullness of God's vision a success? Yes. But he was also met with much opposition, religious and political. Was he not beaten? Was he not warned not to preach anymore? Was he not imprisoned? Yes. But he was a soldier of Christ on the marsh, filled with the power of the Spirit, and by extension, sisters and brothers. This is our story. This is the story of the Church of Christ up to the present day. Being united to God through prayer and fasting opens us up to receive the grace of God that God offers us. We're invited to plead to God with our hearts, minds, souls, and bodies, opening us up and our lives for the movement of the Spirit. We might be met with hardship and resistance, but in surrendering to the Spirit, we find the source of power that changes things for good in our lives, in our families, and in our work. The Spirit leads us to learn to see through the eyes of God 
and to be commissioned for God's work like the Apostle Paul. We're all disciples on mission. What's our mission? How does it look? How do we live it out? It's by declaring the Lordship of Jesus and expanding his sovereign reign. It can take different shapes and forms, most of which will be ordinary, but the heart of it is to announce the truth, live it out, and to be the hands and feet of Christ in our circles, in our work, in our family, in our city, in our church, and in the church's mission. This is my prayer for all of us. Amen.